So it's our second session on maturity. Uh, we're still in the process of defining maturity. And also we're going to talk some more today about what our relationship to society is in terms of uh, maturity, where we fit into society, where we fit into our lives, okay, and what does that mean in terms of our individual maturity. So uh, last time we talked a bit about definitions of maturity. We're going to continue to, to develop that, okay? There's a lot more to it than what we talked about last time. And as we go through these weeks of study, you'll, get, uh, you'll see more and more that has to do with maturity. This is the book, okay? Don't worry about this. You'll never get a copy. Um, I'm, I'm still waiting for the uh, copies that I've ordered. I uh, looked at multiple outlets, and they still tell me, they, they're still promising that I'll get it. But I don't know. It's supposed to be the 26th of December. So we can continue without that. I'm taking the, you know, the high points out of that to use for this uh, discussion. So um, when we get them, even if we're done with our study, we'll distribute those. Because it's a good book. It's, it's one that's good to have on your, on your shelf and to read. Let's start with this, uh, uh, this uh, citation, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. It says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from, the, from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore... I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Interesting. If we're, you know, our topic is maturity. If we look at what's happening with Paul here, Paul is still growing, isn't he? He's still asking for this thorn in the flesh to be taken, whatever the interpretation of what that thorn is. He's still asking God that that be taken away from him. Just take it away. And he's asked a couple of times, multiple times that that be taken away. And we can see the process of maturation here for um, Paul. Has he rested himself entirely in God? Yet we know Paul we hold in high esteem because of his writings. But we can see he is still growing. He's still accepting what the Lord has given him and also has, is accepting what the Lord has revealed to him about that challenge. So, maturity. Even Paul is becoming more mature here. Um, he's not quite rested in the Lord, and as with all of us, he hasn't rested to any really great extent yet in the Lord. And this, uh, this conflict that he has about the thorn of the flesh teaches us that. At what point are we simply going to say, the Lord is in charge, he's leading our lives, he's taking us to a perfect point that he has made for us. That's not the way we think about our, our lives day by day, is it? We're out there running them ourselves. We come into all kinds of challenges, all kinds of things that make us feel badly, and yet we're still asking the Lord why he does that. And we're still discovering what he does with our lives individually. So Paul is not mature yet. He's not complete yet, okay? And the question will be for you to roll around in your mind when will he become complete? And we could probably debate that for a long time. But think about that as we go through the study. When do we become complete? 
if Paul is not complete, if he's not mature at this point, when is it, when is it going to occur for you and I? Okay, it's a good question to ask yourself. And I'll suggest to you, as I will in the future as well, that the answer to that may be never. Okay, one of the great joys that we have in this life is to continue to grow in Christ, right? We enjoy that, don't we? Pick up your Bible each time. You learn something new about Christ each time. You learn more about resting in Christ each time you go to your Bible. And we enjoy that. We enjoy growing, okay? Sometimes we demean ourselves by telling ourselves, like Paul, even with the thorn in the flesh, that we're not where we should be. But God really, as we've said, has us where he wants us. And he's perfecting a work in us at this time. Last time, we talked about a poem, Under a Tree, which I think illustrates this really well, this relationship between God and ourselves, this perfect relationship. It's a short poem. I'll read it again. It says, this is called Under a Tree by Richard Wilbur. We know those tales of gods in hot pursuit who frightened wood nymphs into taking root and and changing then into a branchy shape fair but perplexing to the thought of rape. But this, we say, is more how love is made, ply and reply of limbs in fireshot shade, where overhead we hear tossed leaves consent to take the wind in free dishevelment, and answering with supple blade and stem, caress the gusts that are caressing them. This thing of maturity is what? We've said maturity has all to do with God. We can list a lot of things uh, that we say have to do with maturity. We talk about physical age, we talk about intellectual age, we talk about learning, we talk about growing up, growing in our professions, growing in the management of our families, all of these things. There's an awful lot of things that we like to say that we're mature about. But really, as we said last time, maturity rests in our relationship with Jesus Christ and really nothing else. We'll discuss more of that later. But here in this poem, first part is about um, wood nymphs, you know, stories from ages past, and uh, how the story was the gods would impose themselves on their subjects, on wood, wood nymphs in this case. And uh, they would pursue them. The nymphs, to get away from uh, these gods that were imposing themselves on them, would take root and turn themselves into trees. That's what a wood nymph is, in case you guys didn't know these stories. They're probably worth knowing, I'm not sure. But at any rate, he uses them as a symbol here. The wood nymphs take root, they turn themselves into trees trees to protect themselves against these gods that impose themselves on their subjects. But Wilbur says further here, but this is not what love is made of. Love is not made of imposition, okay? He says it's ply and reply. What does that mean? When you ply somebody to do something, what are you doing? You might ply somebody to take some food. Here, have a drink. No, it's okay, I don't want anything. Well, come on, have a drink. You're plying that person to sit and have tea with you or coffee or whatever. You're plying them. You're trying to convince them. You're trying to bring them into relationship with you. And that's what God does with us. He's plying all the time. He's working on us all the time. And where are we with that? It's reply. It's 
going to God. It's knowing him through his word. It's being compliant with his law. So real love, says Wilbur, is made of ply and reply. God plying and we replying. It's a relationship, okay? He says, where overhead we hear toss leaves consent to take the wind in free dishevelment, okay? What is the wind? We always think of wind as what spirits. We say that we shouldn't be moving with every wind of doctrine. It's something that's hidden, isn't it? It's something that's hidden. And uh, as is described here, the wind is growing through the trees, making the trees move, okay? And those leaves are tossed about. We know that around here, don't we? We know the leaves are tossed about. The branches are tossed about. So this relationship, this ply and reply, is a disheveled relationship. It's a confused, active relationship. For us, there's a lot of confusion in it, isn't there? For Paul, thorn in the flesh, right? Why is this happening to me? And yet he's in strong relationship with God. And it's a free dishevelment. Do we look to God? Do we look to Jesus Christ and enter strongly into that relationship with him? Do we do that or do we not? At any rate, because we're fallen, sinful, what is relationship with a holy person going to be? It's going to be a disheveled relationship, isn't it? It's going to be tumultuous. It's going to be tough, okay? It's going to be very difficult. So the poet says, to take the wind, to take the influence of the spirit in free dishevelment. We accept that, okay? We accept it as being part of our life, part of what God wants for us. And answering with supple blade and stem, the, the leaf and the stem of the tree caress the gusts that are caressing them. Remember, ply and reply. This is a relationship. The gusts of wind, the image of the Spirit there blowing through the trees. What does the tree do? The tree waves back and forth. It waves into the wind. First of all, it waves with the wind and then against the wind. It's back and forth. It's kind of a disheveled relationship, but it is a relationship. It's gusts that caress the gusts that are caressing them. How do we do that? We worship God, we go to God, we submit ourselves to him, okay? This is a relationship. It's not an imposition of God upon us. You know, God has certain rights with us. He's our creator. He's our ruler, okay? He's not imposing himself on us. He is doing what he should do. He is getting his due. And his due from us, okay, what he deserves from us, is what? Worship, okay? Glorification, submission, those kinds of things. And that's what's happening in this poem. Caress the gusts that are caressing them. The gusts come through. The tree goes back and forth, and there's a relationship between the wind and the trees. So why do I talk about this poem, okay? We talked last time about how maturity is all about a relationship with God, Okay? There's nothing else. Okay? If you're not a Christian, how can you call yourself mature? And I'll submit to you again that you can't. And we'll talk about that more later on in terms of talking about the definitions of words and whatnot. But it is a relationship. Maturity is relationship with God and what your relationship with God is like. Okay? 
Is it a complete relationship? Is one where you are looking truthfully at God, knowing what your life is like, knowing what God is like? What is that relationship like? And maturity, okay, is all about where your relationship with God is, okay? Is it a, is it a relationship that is superficial, not a lot of interaction, not a lot of Bible reading, not a lot of talking among ourselves about God, or is it a very complete relationship where every step you take, every breath, is done in the name of the Lord? Where is your maturity? The maturity has to do with relationship with God. Um, so there are things, and some of these are out of the book. I am, want you to be sure that I'm using that as my reference. Uh, things that oppose or hinder maturity. What gets in our way? Well, we could probably all, if we sat together and made a list, uh, we could come with a lot of things that get in our way. Biggest thing is ourselves, of course. We have all kinds of things that we do. But uh, Ferguson says, the, our author says, there aren't very many characters in this world. Okay, This means like a, a character who is different from everybody else. Okay, Not very many characters in this world. I think some of you guys hold me as a character because I'm a bit unusual in what I say sometimes, the way I approach you sometimes. But a character is somebody that stands out from everybody else. We're using that definition here. So Ferguson says there are not many characters in this world. Characters are contrasted with what's around them. They're different. They stand out. You're sitting in church. You're sitting in a meeting at work, okay? And everybody's kind of sitting there, and if you get up and you're done with the meeting, you walk out, we might ask you, who was in the meeting? And most of the time, you can't remember who was there because nobody stands out. Nobody says anything, okay? You have important things to talk about, and yet a lot of times in these meetings, people don't say a word. Who's the character in that room? You need to ask yourself those things. Who is it that stands out? And that's important because we contrast with the world, don't we? We're different, okay? And we need to stand out from the world, and we do. When we have that strong, more mature relationship with God, we look different than everybody else does, don't we? We look different. We stand out. You know this. Start talking about your Christianity everywhere. People get up and walk away, right? Who's that guy? Who's that character, okay? But this is one of the ways that we, we, we show our immaturity in our relationship with God. We don't really stand out to the rest of the world. It doesn't mean you have to wear funny clothes or do funny things in a meeting or crack jokes or say things don't belong. But you'll see in those things where you're in the world, you will stand out from everybody else. You will be that character. We contribute to society because we're different. Okay, You go to work and Go to the meeting, don't say anything. The way it is in most of the meetings that I was ever in, most people don't talk. You go to those meetings, you don't stand out, you're not contributing a thing, okay? If you're not the person that stands out, that adds to the situation, you're not contributing a thing. You know, outspokenness is discouraged. And how many times have I said something in a meeting and everybody goes like this? Who's that guy? You know, it's discouraged. People don't want you to speak out. You know this. You guys know this. You've seen this in your jobs, okay? 
They want you to be the same. They want everybody to be the same. Don't ruffle. Don't stir up the ocean, right? Um, the gospel is countercultural. We're against the world, aren't we? We're, we're trying to find our final rest. We're trying to find our rest in Jesus Christ. So what happens in companies, what happens in our society, in our neighborhoods, our organizations, is we become followers. We do what everybody else wants, okay? To be the character, to be the one that stands out, takes a lot of intestinal fortitude, okay? takes a lot of strength to do that. Um, most people will just follow. They won't talk up in the meeting. They call them sheeples. Have you ever heard that before? Instead of people, it's sheeples, okay? They just follow. It's not like our relationship with Jesus Christ where we know him and he knows us. That's different. That's a mature relationship. Sheeples, sheeples simply follow, okay? They don't contribute. They don't stand out, okay? It's not a relationship. So we could see that in that poem that we just went through, uh, that relationship, that tight relationship between God and us, the wind through the trees that shakes us, that moves us, and we move back to God as well. We give him the honor, the worship that he deserves, the attention that he deserves in his word. So we live in a fallen world. We know what life in a fallen world is about. Um, we don't like to confront the world. We talked last time about goblin mode. What do we do? We go into the goblin mode where we don't want to contribute. We get lazy, okay? Uh, we don't stand out from the world the way we want to, and yet we're rebellious against the world. You know, you're in the committee meeting. They want to do something. You say, oh, well, that's crazy. I'm not doing that. But you don't say anything. You don't confront the world the way you're supposed to. To confront the world is the mature way to go about this. But what we tend to do today is go into go goblin mode. You know, We're not there. We don't want to be seen. But we're going to do whatever we want. It's a lazy way of being in society. So the world is a difficult place to be. It's against most of Christianity. Um, and how, how is it that we adapt to that as opposed to the way society adapts to that? Most of society, when we're not thinking in a Christian way or we're not Christian, we, we, we want to pretend that the world is different than what it is. We want to pretend that the world isn't beset by sin and fallenness. And, uh, you know, society has a lot of different ways of uh, describing this. Um, I have a list here from, I didn't put it on your handout, I'm sorry. Um, this is from an article called On Hope and Holy Fools by a lady named Burton. Um, subtitle is, There is Nothing Very Sexy About Hope. Okay? So think about what you believe about hope. So society... It wants to pretend that the world is different than what it is. We have, she lists, um, the social justice activists who deny differences among people. We know that, don't we? We deny differences among people. We talk, like to talk about there's all these different types of people. You're supposed to be inclusive, accepting, right? But really, that's all surface. And what we see when you're a social justice activist, everybody's the same. Okay, everybody needs to be treated the same. 
You need to make the same amount of money. You need to transfer money from one person to another, okay? The social justice activists want to deny that there's this variety in society that God has created. Uh, she also lists utopian progressives who wish to explain away crime as a product of circumstance, okay? It's not what we believe. We believe in law of God. We believe in, in real justice. So the utopian progressives wish to explain away crime as a product of circumstance. Then there's the idealists who think two people can fall in love without implicitly comparing and maximizing their social capital. That's kind of a tough statement. What she means is, how do you fall in love, either romantically or in a Christian sense, without knowing who that person is? You need to know who they are, what their ideas are, how they live, okay? We can't minimize their social capital. Everybody's not the same. Everybody's different. And um, are the idealists in our society want to minimize that and therefore minimize our relationships with each other. Um, so those are just a few things about our society. It's, you know, how we tend to, to live. And again, we're talking about maturity here. What would a mature relationship with the world be? Recognizing, recognizing the fallen down parts of it. Getting out there, contributing, okay? Risking being that character, okay, as part of maturity. We look at most of our society, most of these things that, uh, that Burton has written in this article um, are ways of getting away from confronting the world and making it more in line with the Christian way. Why don't we move on to another poem? I know you guys just can't wait, can you? Okay. This is uh, William Wordsworth, The World is Too Much With Us. Very similar theme, right? The world is too much with us. This poem has been used, high schools, colleges, uh, all kinds of educational institutions, um, for actually uh, criti criticizing um, our position in the world. But let's read it through and see what this is really about. The World is Too Much With Us by William Wordsworth. The world is too much with us, late and soon getting and spending we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away, a sordid boon. This sea that bears her bosom to the moon, the winds that will be howling at all hours and are, and are upgathered now like sleeping flowers. For this, for everything, we are out of tune. It moves us not. Great God, I'd rather be a pagan suckled in a creed outworn so might I, standing on this pleasant lee, have glimpses that would make me less forlorn, have sight of Proteus rising from the sea, or hear old Triton blow his wreathed horn. Okay, that's tough, isn't it? All right, a lot of language there, a lot of things that we don't know because we're not involved in these things day by day. But the world is too much with us. Do you feel like that sometimes? Sometimes I'm too much in the world. I'd get home from work sometimes, and my, I'd be crabbing about all kinds of things, and my wife would say, well, you're just world-weary again. And we get that way, don't we? We get tired of all the stuff that we're exposed to. The world is too much with us, says Wordworth. Late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. This is the way we do things, isn't it? Getting, spending, having this, having that, being involved in this, being involved with that. 
getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. So you, I just, I should interject here, William Wordsworth was one of the romantic poets, late 1700s, early 1800s, a long time ago. And yet the language speaks to what we go through today, doesn't it? Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. That takes our power out of us, the way we live our lives, concentrating on these things. Little we see in nature that is ours. Little we see in nature that is ours. Another criticism of how we live our lives. Are you looking at what God made here? Are you looking at creation, to start with, the beautiful things that God has made? Are we looking at it specifically? And really seeing God in those things, okay? Little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away a sordid boon. We give our hearts to other things, don't we? To these things we get and spend and these other things we do. Then Wordsworth goes to describe partly what this creation is all about that we should be concentrating on. This sea that bears her bosom to the moon. You guys know that, don't you? The sea controlled by the moon, right? The waves, the tides, okay? Let's look at this nature that God has created. Isn't that fantastic? It's almost impossible to understand, isn't it? How does the moon control the seas? Well, we know gravity, all that kind of stuff, but we really don't have a sense of it, do we? It's like the wind that goes through the trees in that first poem that we talked about. Something we don't understand, but that we see. Okay, the winds, okay, the sea that bears her bosom to the moon, the winds that will be howling at all hours and are upgathered now like sleeping flowers. Do we understand winds? Where do winds come from? Where do they go? Okay, Uh, Wordsworth is describing here The winds come along, they're howling, they scare us, make us apprehensive, and yet then they just disappear. They're upgathered now like sleeping flowers. Isn't that a description? Beautiful, isn't it? Good poetic description of what's happening. Do we see these things in our world? Do we marvel at them because of uh, what God has made and how he has made it? He says, uh, Wordsworth says, for this, for everything, we are out of tune. Okay, We don't get this stuff. We're not looking at it. We're not looking at what God created. We're out of tune. It moves us not, meaning that it should move us. And then he has an exclamation. He says, great God, why are we this way? I'd rather be a pagan suckled in a creed outworn, so might I, standing on this pleasant lee, okay, this land, have glimpses that would make me less forlorn. See what God has made. Discern what God is doing to some extent. Not fully, but to some extent. Discern. See what God is doing. And this is what he's asking. This is what the speaker is asking for. Have glimpses that would make me less forlorn. Concentrating on God. Maturing in your relationship with God so that you are less forlorn. You're less unhappy. Have sights of Proteus rising from the sea. He's not saying that we should look at the pagan gods. He's saying that these pagan gods were used to describe what nature is like, okay? Uh, Proteus was uh, a god. He was a a minor sea god who um, could see the future, okay? He could see what was coming, but he didn't tell anybody, okay? So what, what good is that? But Wordsworth is saying here, I'd rather see Proteus there in the midst of nature, in the midst of what God has created and understand it 
In the last line he says, or hear old Triton, another sea god, you know Triton, he's got the three forked um, staff, or hear old Triton blow his wreathed horn, that wind that he talked about before, okay? Wordsworth is saying that we should be noticing these things, we should be looking at our lives, we should be seeing God, what God has created here. Um, this title, the word, the world is too much with us. It doesn't mean the world is too much with us, as I described for myself, that I became world weary. This is actually an incomplete statement. Okay, it's an ellipsis. Okay, there's more there that we should be adding on. Is what that means. The world is too much with us. The world is here. Okay, we should be seeing it. We should be taking note of it. Um, creation, nature the way our lives interact, we should be taking note of it. It's too much with us for us to neglect it, is what he means. That would be the complete sentence. The world is too much with us for us to neglect what's there. We're falling down. We're not mature in our relationship with this life that God has given us. So, a good poem. I don't know, you guys have had this since last week, this poem, and I was going to ask... How many of you have read it a hundred times like we talked about? That's what I thought. Nobody did, but it's actually, you need more than a hundred. You need a thousand. Now, here's a contrasting title, seemingly, okay, from Richard Wilbur. Richard Wilbur is late 1900s, early 2000s, okay? So he's more modern, but still goes way back. Um, Love calls us to the things of this world, okay? It seems to be a contrast to what... um, Wordsworth was saying, Wilbur says that love calls us to the things of this world, that love should make us more attentive to what's there, right? Love calls us to the things of this world. Listen to this poem. It's a really, really interesting, um, entertaining poem, really. Love calls us to the things of this world. The eyes open to a cry of pulleys, and spirited from sleep, the astounded soul hangs for a moment bodiless and simple, as false dawn, bodiless and simple as false dawn. Outside the open window, the morning air is awash with angels. Some are in bedsheets, some are in blouses, some are in smocks, but truly there they are. Now they are rising together in calm swells of halcyon feeling, filling whatever they wear with, deep, with the deep joy of their impersonal breathing. Now they are flying in place, conveying the terrible speed of their omnipresence, moving and staying like white water. And now of a sudden, they swoon down into so rapt a quiet that nobody seems to be there. The soul shrinks from all that is about to remember. The soul shrinks from all that is about to remember, from the perpunctual rape of every blessed day, and cries, Oh, let there be nothing on earth but laundry nothing but rosy hands and rising steam and clear dances done in the sight of heaven. Yet, as the sun acknowledges with a warm look the world's, the world's hunks and colors, the soul descends once more in bitter love to accept the waking body, saying now in a changed voice as the man yawns and rises, bring them down from their ruddy gallows. Let there be clean linen for the backs of thieves, Let lovers go fresh and sweet to be undone, 
and the heaviest nuns walk in pure float in the pure in a pure floating of dark habits, keeping their difficult balance. Okay, poetic language again, but I think you guys got the got what the scene is here, didn't you? This is the laundry hanging out on the line. Let's go through it. We can learn some things about maturity, about our relationship with God. The eyes open to the quiet to the cry of pulleys. He's waking up in the morning. Okay. What does he hear? He hears the pulleys on the clothesline outside. Lots of you will remember that, the pulleys on the clothesline. Some won't. The eyes open to the cry of, to a cry of pulleys. And spirited from sleep, the astounded soul hangs for a moment bodiless and simple as false dawn. That's like our first waking up in the morning, isn't it? Sometimes we wake up and we're kind of half awake and then we go back to sleep. That's what the false dawn is all about. And spirited from sleep, the astounded soul hangs for a moment bodiless and simple as false dawn. This is a time, uh, you may read in accounts and novels and things, this time of this first awakening is the morning. It's sometimes where you see things the most clear, the clearest. Okay? You wake up, you start to hear things. Life seems sort of clear at that point. And so it's a false dawn. There is such thing as a false dawn. The sun came, comes up, there's a burst of light, and then it seems to go down again. That's called false dawn. And this is, describes also our awakening in the morning. You see things that are a bit more clear at that time. You see them more clearly. He says, outside the open window, the morning is awash with angels. Okay. Some are in bed sheets, angels blowing through the laundry, right? It's kind of funny. Some are in bed sheets, some are in blouses, some are in smocks, but truly there they are. Something's moving the laundry along, around on the line, similar to what we saw in the trees earlier on. There's a wind. He calls them angels, okay? There's a spirit that's coming into these things that are hanging there. Now they are rising together in calm swells. Okay, laundry goes up. You guys remember this? When was the last time you hung out laundry? Probably not very recently, okay. Um, now they are rising together in calm swells of halcyon feeling. Halcyon is a, a good feeling, a full feeling, a, a complete feeling of halcyon feeling, filling whatever they wear, okay, with the deep joy of their impersonal breathing, okay? Meaning that there's something spiritual, they say, he says angels, there's something spiritual that comes into the laundry on the line, right? It gives it life. It seems funny, doesn't it? It seems, seems almost childlike. But you know, what are our lives like in that way? How often are we suffused with the Spirit, okay? How often do you read your Bible and have that Spirit come into you and know what God is saying in His Word, with the deep joy of impersonal breathing. Something is coming into them. It's impersonal. It's filling them up. In this case, he uses the image of laundry on a line as how we're filled with the Spirit. Now they are flying in place, conveying the terrible speed of their omnipresence. Big wind comes up in the laundry. What happens? I know Bob remembers this. I'm sure he held out lots of laundry. What happens when the wind blows strong? The laundry goes straight out, doesn't it? It looks like it's not moving at all, okay? But in fact, that laundry is filled with air, filled with the wind, just like we should be filled. He calls it the terrible speed of their omnipresence. They're there all the time. 
Your life is eternal. Now they are flying in place, conveying the terrible speed of their omnipresence, the laundry straight out, moving and staying like white water. White water looks the same way. When you're looking down a river, white water, you know, some of you have done that rafting. I was always too scared to do that. But the white water, it looks like it's the same all the time, doesn't it? But you know it's moving, right? There's something that's moving it along. You take a, you might say, you take kind of a snapshot in your mind. What do you see? You see the rushing of water. It looks like it's standing still, but there's something very powerful going on there. Um, let's see, staying like white water, and now all of a sudden they swoon down and so rapidly quiet that nobody seems to be there. Wind is gone, falls straight down. Right, the soul shrinks from all that is about to, that from all that it is about to remember from the punctual rape of every blessed day and cries, oh, let there be nothing but but on earth but laundry. Okay. So Wilbur talks here about the punctual rape of every blessed day. Isn't that the way we carry out our lives? Every day we've got it on schedule. He calls it the punctual rape. We've got control of every day, right? You've got your calendar made out. I'm going to do this. I'm going to cause this to happen in the world and so forth and so on. Whereas we really know that that's not the way it is. We have a relationship with God. God is the sovereign. He is the provident one, right? And yet we act like we have total control of every day that there is from the punctual rape of every blessed day. Do we think about that as in terms of how we confront our days? Is it a rape of those days or is it a glorification of God in our days? And cries, oh, let there be nothing on earth but laundry. Mundane, right? Kind of commonplace. Nothing but rosy hands in the rising steam. Washing. And clear dances done in the sight of heaven. The laundry dancing on the line. Yet as the sun acknowledges with a warm look the world's hunks and colors, the sun shows these colors, shows the shapes that are there in creation. Yet as the sun acknowledges with a warm look the world's hunks and colors, the sun, that coming down from the heavens, right, shows us God's creation that we should be noticing, we should be living in. The soul descends once more in bitter love to accept the waking body, saying now in a changed voice as the man yawns and rises, bring them down from their ruddy gallows. He's describing the laundry on the line as being a gallows. They're all hung there, right? Bring them down from their ruddy gallows. Let there be clean linen for the backs of thieves. Let lovers go fresh and sweet to be undone. And the heaviest nuns walk in a pure floating of dark habits, keeping their difficult balance. He's trying to bring us down to earth. That's what this is all about. As you get to your 100th reading of this, you you may perceive this. He's trying to bring this all down to earth. Bring them down from their ruddy gallows. Bring the laundry down. Let there be clean linen for the backs of thieves. Let us see a true view, a real view, a clean view of what life is about, of what God has created, okay, about how we should be looking at our lives day by day. Let lovers go fresh and sweet to be undone. This is the things of our day by day. And the heaviest nuns walk in pure floating of dark habits, keeping their difficult balance. Again, these are the things of our day-by-day life that we trudge through day by day. And these are the things that we should be noticing. 
The theology here is from St. Augustine. Wilbur tells us that in his commentary on this poem. And uh, this reality of bringing us closer to God is what uh, Augustine wanted us to do as well. So take that explanation, okay? Read this poem. It tells us a lot about how we should be. We're talking about maturity again. What is our life like? Are we pounding away at every day? We've got it all scheduled. Wilbur says we've raped every day. We're pounding away at it, but we're really not taking those days in the form or seeing those days in the form that God has given them to us. We should be seeing them faithfully, okay? So um, look at that. We're talking about how what is a mature, we're trying to establish what is a mature way of being in the world. We've got a lot more to discuss as we go along, but that's one of the things that we're talking about here. And I think Wilbur and um, Wordsworth give us some good descriptions of what we should be doing. Slow down, you know, notice what your days are. And in those in that poetic language, that becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. One of, the reasons, one of the reasons that poetry is the quintessential way of expression is because it's so deep and buried. As you read it, there's more and more in it as you read it. We know that from our Bibles, right? Read the Psalms, read the poetic books, read other poetic areas of the Bible. You know that there's a lot of meaning in all of that. So uh, read these through. It may help you to understand this maturity that we're trying to establish, a good way, a mature way of looking at the world. Um, Isaiah 6, 1 through 7 is on your handout. We won't read the whole thing. I wanted to say, uh, look at mainly verse 5. Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That's what we're describing, isn't it? Okay, sometimes we see the Bible as being kind of separate from the way we are. But in these poems and some of the other things that we described, we could say, well, that's where we are, isn't it? I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We talked about these ways of being in society. Uh, We have unclean lips. We live in a world that is that way as well. That's part of our immaturity. Maturity has to do with seeing the world more as God has created it in the way he wants to reveal himself to us. Remember, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. Um, let's see. Genesis, uh, I wanted to make this relationship between um, you know, marriage. We've discussed this a lot. You guys have heard a lot about it. You know, Genesis 2. Um, Let's uh, let's start at 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he uh, slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You know, marriage, I've read, on, read a lot of marriage ceremonies. But what is this talking about? It's talking about a relationship, right? Adam and Eve, okay? Jesus Christ and the elect, okay? It's a relationship. It's supposed to be this close. That relationship is supposed to be like that. Genesis, very beginning of the Bible, from way, 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 way back, right? Nice ancient language, but... 
what is described here is what? The first general anesthetic, right? He's talking about our era, isn't he? General anesthesia started in the late 1800s, for you guys who don't remember that. And here, God is talking about putting somebody to sleep, doing an operation, making somebody else well as a, as a result. And so we say, hello, he's talking to us, okay? You think way back they understood what this was all about? Um, probably partially. But again, this is about relationship. It's about the marriage relationship between the lamb and, um, the, uh, and the bridegroom. It's relationship again. Do we have that maturity of our relationship? Well, I'm going to go off kind of wild here again, guys, as we finish up. Your last poem, maybe you will appreciate this more than the other ones. I hope not, but at any rate. This is from a a song called Echo by Maroon 5, okay? It describes something very similar to what we're talking about. You know, the rest of society has this idea too, this idea of lostness, of not being mature in Christ. So, Echo, Maroon 5, uh, it's a rapper called Black Bear, you can see there. It says, yeah, I got this heart-shaped hole inside of me. I try to fill with anything, like taking trips and buying things. Burn bridges that once guided me, and I hate the way I watched you leave. My ego got the best of me. I gave you insecurities. These tears fall off my Bentley sheets, and now all I feel is depressed. All that I stay, all that I taste is regret. I cannot tell what it is, what is real. Only the pain that I feel. You give me nothing but stress, and this echo, echo, echo. You left in my, inside my chest. You left in my chest. Okay. Maroon 5. Basically, he's saying the same thing that Wordsworth and Wilbur said, right? This empty place in my chest, okay? I try to fill with anything, like taking trips and buying things, burn bridges that once guided me, and I hate the way I watched you leave. My ego got the best of me. Sounds like Paul, doesn't it? I gave you insecurities. These tears fall off my Bentley sheets. All the ladies here understand what Bentley sheets are, I'm sure. I had to look it up. It's some brand of sheets that has a particular weave and so many thousands of threads per inch, okay? Uh, These tears fall off my Bentley sheets. This is real. This is real world. And now all I feel is depressed. All that I taste is regret. I cannot tell what is real, only the pain that I feel. You give me nothing but stress and this echo, 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 echo. You left in my chest. Or we're left a lot of times, isn't it? An echo. We feel alone. We don't feel mature. We feel isolated. We don't feel fully in our relationship with God. And that's what we're looking at as our theme with regard to maturity. This echo inside of our chest. I forget who said it. Um, Heart-shaped there's a God-shaped vacant vacancy in your heart. Who can uh, I forget uh, who said that? But that was one of our great philosophers. Uh, Maroon Five is saying the same thing here. He probably stole it from him. But at any rate, we have this absence inside of us, where this thing that echoes around. Do, do we find truth? Do we find a real relationship with God? Do we see God and what He created and what He does with our lives? And that's the goal of maturity: is that full relationship with God. So I think we've established our need. 
We've established where we are, and uh, from here we will uh, start to look at the goal. Starting next week, we'll start starting looking at the goal that we should be shooting for. Um, I'll leave you guys to think about in the next week what that goal is. You should know the answer right away, but think about it. What is our goal in terms of our maturity and our growth in relationship? Uh, we'll talk more about that next week. So uh, we'll close for now. Uh, we have one more lesson, by the way, before the Christmas and New Year's holidays, and then we'll begin this again the second Sunday in, in uh, January. But we have one lesson next week, and then we'll start again in January. So let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for